Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. We're going to read the second half of the chapter, verses 21 through 45. You'll find that on page 951 of your Bibles. And I would say um, uh, this is one of these lengthy passages. Pay attention. One commentator said that nobody should preach this passage. Uh, You should only teach it. Uh, So fair warning, there's a lot of detail uh, here in this passage, and so uh, do your best to pay attention, and uh, we'll go ahead and and make sense of this um, as the word is going to be preached today. I'll back up to verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and He shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among the plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall 
magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. The God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of, of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would give us insight and wisdom and that you would use your word by your Holy Spirit to change us, to transform us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to do a little poll this morning and ask you if you know a particular phrase by show of hands. How many of you know the phrase, what you know good? Okay, less than half, okay. I went to, uh, from Fort Lauderdale, Florida to Jackson, Mississippi to go to seminary, and I remember the first time somebody in Jackson, this is a distinctively uh, southern thing, and, and uh, I don't know if it's just Mississippi or not, but somebody came up to me and said, what you know good? I really didn't know how to respond to that. Um, I thought, well, I guess they're asking how are you doing, and uh, so I said, well, I, I'm, things are going well, I'm, I'm doing well. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to actually uh, look at this quite literally. Uh, what do you know good? Uh, what is it that you know that we can learn that is revealed to us in this text today that will help us as we encounter difficulties and troubles and trials, even against our faith? What do you know good? And what we're going to do today is we're going to take that 10,000-foot look at history and we're going to be able to benefit by, by looking at the evil and the uh, power-hungry and the prideful and the successful uh, leaders and rulers and despots and find that they are insignificant because they come to nothing. They are impermanent because God is in control. There was a book back in the 70s, a pop psychology book uh, with the title, I'm Okay, You're Okay, and many of you also know that Steve Brown, a, a pastor, kind of flipped that on its, uh, in its meaning and said, I'm not okay and you're not okay, but it's okay, uh, meaning that we're all sinners. We are saved by the grace of God, though. And today I'm going to take it and flip it one more time to say it's not okay, but I'm okay because God's okay. God is in control. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the itty-bitty baby in his hands. He's got, the, he's got brothers in, in his hands. He's got sisters in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. 
We've already sung this morning, this is my father's world. Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And the message of Daniel 11 is that God is in control, that he loves his people, uh, that, that while it looks like the world is in control of despots, that in fact God is in control. And you'll remember, those of you who were here last week, that this came as part of a vision that Daniel received uh, through a news herald, uh, not a paper at your doorstep, but it was an angelic messenger that came to uh, give him insight first into this spiritual battle that was taking place behind the scenes, a kind of a behind-the-scenes glimpse at what was going on and how these uh, spiritual entities were affecting uh, the physical and material world that we live in. And so today we actually get to see the outworking of that in the physical realm, the behind the scenes as it plays out. And when we look at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 11, we find that uh, what is revealed to Daniel through prophecy is that, the, um, that, that things are going to change that the Persians who are in control at the time when Daniel uh, receives this prophecy are about to be, or going to be, overthrown eventually by the Greeks. And so that's what we have in verses 2 through 4. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all, the, all against the kingdoms of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. And we know through um, historical accounts that this prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, that this final fourth king was the greatest king, King Xerxes. And King Xerxes uh, waged battle against Greece. And in 480 B.C., in the Battle of Salamis, uh, Xerxes was defeated. And one Greek uh, mighty warrior rose up, a mighty general, and that was Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great conquered, uh, conquered an area from Greece all the way to India and was massively successful. And he is the mighty king, referred to in verse 3, who dominates and does as he wills. And then we learn in history, again, that after Alexander's death, uh, his kingdom went, according to the prophecy, not to his posterity, but it was divided up between four of Alexander the Great's generals. What we have in the rest of uh, Daniel chapter 11 is we have the account of two of these generals in particular that took over large chunks of uh, territory. And we learn here of them because this, these are the generals and these are the areas that have particular impact on the people of God in Israel. And that's God's primary concern is with his people. The first is Ptolemy, uh, the first he was a proficient general under Alexander the Great, and Ptolemy became uh, the ruler of Egypt. And then the second one was Seleucius the first. Um, and by the way, when the text here refers to the king of the south, that is the, the uh, Ptolemy the first, and then the dynasty that follows him. 
that is the king of the south, the Egyptians. And then Seleucus I uh, was a lesser general under Alexander, but he was given Babylonian rule. And so he is the king of the north. And eventually, Seleucus and the Seleucian dynasty, dynasty takes up residence, sort of the capital is in Syria. Now, Syria's been in the news, right? So you've got Syria to the north, and you've got Egypt to the south, and what do you have in between? Israel. Israel is in between Syria and Egypt. And so sort of they played football uh, with Israel. And so we learn about that history here in the text. Now you'll notice uh, that there's some specific detail. I've already gone into detail, historical detail, and there's really amazing detail in this prophecy uh, as it's fleshed out in history. Everybody agrees that a lot of these things uh, you can pinpoint in history. And in fact, uh, this would actually make a great uh, Netflix television series. I mean, there's so much detail here. There's so much intrigue. Uh, there's, there's salacious stuff goes on. Um, and it would be multi-season. Uh, there's so much to it. So I'm just going to read a couple of these very specific things. Uh, and there are many, many more. So verse 4, of course, we've already talked about. His kingdom shall be broken up and divided. This is um, Ralph Davis is a commentator, and he says, no sooner does Alexander amass his empire than it will be splintered. And then in verse 6, but she will not hold on to the strength of her arm, but she will be given over. And then uh, Ralph Davis says, the alliance forged through Bernice's marriage to Antiochus uh, II will not succeed. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So what's going on there? Well, Ptolemy II, the second uh, ruler in Egypt, uh, reigns and fancies an attempt at romantic diplomacy at about 250 B.C. He gives his daughter Bernice in marriage to Antiochus II, so the second ruler of the north, and with the proviso that Bernice's son would be, would be heir to Antiochus's Seleucid throne. There was a slight hitch. Antiochus II was already married, but not to worry. Antiochus put away his wife, Leotis, and went on with the plan. However, two years later, Bernice's father, Ptolemy II, died. So Antiochus divorced Bernice and took Leotis back. Leotis, once scorned, was not mollified. She apparently poisoned Antiochus and saw to it that Bernice and her child were liquidated. Hence, Leotis's son, Seleucius II, could reign. Right, that's all going on behind the scenes and uh, prophesied the, the uh, rough outline here in the text. Verse 9, but he shall return to his land. About 242 B.C., Seleucius II, king of the north, invaded Egypt, but being defeated, had to return to Syria. Verse 11, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. Ralph Davis goes on to say, raising a great multitude seems to be the work of Antiochus III, the king of the north. An ancient historian says of Antiochus's army at Raphia, it consisted of 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. A formidable force, but given over to Ptolemy IV. And on and on and on it goes. I'll spare you the rest of the details, but you see uh, that, these, that the history fleshes out this prophecy uh, it really in great detail and great accuracy. And uh, liberal 
uh, biblical scholars look at this and say, it's too accurate. It had to be written after the fact. Now, I call them liberal. They would call themselves liberal. And what I mean by that are scholars who make their living from studying the Bible, but they don't believe it's true. And what I say is that this is an evidence of the fact that the Bible is, in fact, true, that God reveals himself ahead of time and does it accurately. We have in verses 2 through 20 a time period of 520 to 175 B.C. And what we see here emphasized in this section is God's sovereignty over the peoples, God's control. God's control, and yet people act. We see that in Scripture. People have a degree of freedom, and yet God is in control. Um, for instance, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then the very next verse, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we've got the free action of human beings as we've been saved by grace through Jesus Christ. We, we uh, flesh out the implications of that salvation in our lives, and we work, and yet we do so because it's God who works in us to will and to work. Uh, and that's a very good situation there, but we know even when it comes to evil that God is still in control. We have the example of Joseph in the Old Testament, and Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God turned that evil act of Joseph's brothers to something that would actually save the people of God. And so for Daniel and for the apostles in the New Testament, uh, they simply uh, express the fact that God is in control and people are free to act. And it doesn't give us a lot of detail in terms of how those two things work out. Just like last week, we get to peek into the mystery. We don't get all the information in the same way. We are told that there is the truth that God is in control and people are free to act. Now, why does God tell us that? It's clear in Scripture he does it for our encouragement. And so if it's your goal to demand that God would solve the mystery, you're going to be disappointed and possibly even bitter. But if your goal is God's goal, to be encouraged by the knowledge that your God is in control, that you are the apple of his eye, regardless of the apparent randomness of it all, then you're going to find encouragement. You know the song, I Know That My Redeemer Lives? It's a hymn that was written in the 1700s. But that line came from Scripture millennia before, and that line came from Job as he was dealing with difficulty and lots of difficulty in his life. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. He trusted in him. And there are some that would advocate a false Christianity that would say that, that God's goal in your life is that you would have a trouble-free life, that you would be healthy and wealthy, and that you would have no problems in your life. And so what happens when you have problems in your life, if you, if you um, uh, buy into that sort of uh, teaching, well, uh, either you think that I'm not uh, good enough or I don't have enough faith, or you blame God. And your, your faith is built on a house of cards, and it falls. And so the reality is that God comes to Daniel 
And he came to Daniel in his mourning and in his pain, as we heard in chapter 10. He was mourning over the state of Israel. And God doesn't say to him, Daniel, I'm going to reveal to you, and everything is going to be sweet, and everything is going to be easy, no problems. No, he doesn't say that. He says, there's going to be lots of difficulty, but I am in control, and I will take care of you ultimately. We read in Daniel eleven sixteen, but he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land, that is Israel, with destruction in his hand. So what does it mean when we encounter difficulty? It, it, it means that God is in control. It means that God still loves you. It means that you are okay because God is good. And even though it's not okay, it's difficult, one day it will be okay for those who wait upon the Lord. God will destroy the wicked, the powerful, the prideful, those taking advantage of the people of God. And while kings and kingdoms appear to have the upper hand over the people of God, they are vapor. God will bring them to an end. You know. You've been told. You see the wind blowing in the trees. It's not just random action. God is in control. And God is in control when you open up your newspaper or you look at news on the Internet, and it seems like everything that's going on is just random acts of violence. God is in control. It's not out of control. And so what's our emotional response? What's our thinking of things not being okay, things being difficult in our lives? We can stress out. We can rail against it. And maybe a little better is to deal with it in resignation. Um, I think of one of my favorite biblical characters, Thomas, you know, Doubting Thomas in the New Testament, sort of the Eeyore of the New Testament. And uh, Thomas uh, is with the disciples, and Jesus says, uh, let us go to Jerusalem. Um, and they know that there's danger ahead for Jesus in Jerusalem. And so Thomas says, well, let us go with him so we can die with him. You know, he's just uh, that kind of guy, you know, resignation. Is that it? Is that the best we can hope for? No, we have confidence. We have confidence in God. And we can cry out and pray for help, uh, and yet we know he'll help, but that doesn't mean that our life is going to be easy, but we know that he cares deeply for us. Now, in verses 21 through 35, we have a change in pace. Things slow up dramatically uh, because at that point, we're only covering uh, 175 to 163 B.C., God takes his time to warn uh, Daniel and to warn the Jews because this is going to be an unparalleled time of difficulty and trouble for the nation of Israel up to that point. And the verses here refer to somebody who becomes apparent in time and place in history, and his name is uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he is going to put Israel through untold horrors, and uh, they will need to stand firm in their faith uh, in the face of opposition and not apostatize. And so we read of him in Daniel eleven twenty eight, And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. And then in verse 30, For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw 
and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. In verse 29, the verse in between, we learn that this uh, particular figure that we know as Antiochus Epiphanes uh, attacks Egypt. And in response, the Romans, who are growing in power, uh, they've got a problem with that. And the Senate uh, sends a fleet of ships. The term kidim there is in reference to ships in the Mediterranean. And so the Romans send a fleet uh, to approach and confront Antiochus Epiphanes with a message that says, cease and desist. Give up your designs on Egypt. In fact, the general Linus, uh, it's reported that he meets with Antiochus and uh, he says, you need to do this. And Antiochus says, well, I need to consult some people. I need to think about this. And so the general draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus and he says, you need to make your decision before you leave this circle. And so he does. Of course, he's in no position to argue. And he leaves and he's furious. And he goes back to Israel and he unleashes horrors on the people of Israel. He wants every Israelite to give up their faith in the true God. He wants every Jew to apostatize, so he institutes a death penalty for circumcising infants. Um, he says that the only sacrifices that can be made are sacrifices to Zeus. Observing the Sabbath day was outlawed with the death penalty, and anybody caught with a, the scroll of a Torah would be killed. As such was Antiochus Epiphanes. So many do succumb and give up their faith. But this was an advanced warning to the people of God. Be aware, this is going to come in the future. Stand firm in your faith. And so we read of him and what he does in the response in verses 32 through 35. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white. Until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. The appointed time. The time designated by God. There's a lot in this section about time and appointed time. Daniel 11.27, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. Daniel 11.29, at the appointed time he shall return and come into the south. And verse 35, for it still awaits the appointed time. The group Chicago sang the song, does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody really care about time? God does. God holds time in his hands. Times are in the hand of God. He cares about it. And if we are wise, we will listen to the prophecy that gives us a glimpse of the appointed time. Verse 36 through 35 speaks of the king who shall do as he wills. Verse 36, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. 
So who is that king? There are two theories about who this king is. The first is that it's just a, continual, a continuation of a discussion about Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, the second is that this is in reference to what the uh, Apostle John first refers to in his epistles as the Antichrist. And there are aspects of verses 36 through 35 that just don't fit with Antiochus Epiphanes. For instance, it says uh, that he will set himself up as God above every God, and yet we know that from history Antiochus Epiphanes uh, required people to worship Zeus. And yet there are things that do fit very nicely with Antiochus Epiphanes. What's going on here? So in Scripture... Uh, one way that scripture is used, one way that God um, prophesies and uses prophecy in the Bible is there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. For instance, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet comes to King Ahaz in chapter 7, and he says to King Ahaz, ask for a sign. King Ahaz says, I'm not, not going to ask for a sign. And so the prophet says, I will give you a sign. The Lord gives you a sign. And the sign is the birth of a child that the king is going to see in his day. And certain things are going to happen in that child's life that will be the fulfillment of the prophecy that God's word is true. So there's a, a near fulfillment. In fact, we see in chapter 8 that the child is born, that the child does come into existence at that time. But then we have chapter 9. And we read some very curious things in chapter 9. For unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There is no way that the child born in chapter 8 uh, in any way fulfills this prophecy. It was only fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And I believe what's going on in chapter 11 in these verses is you have both a fulfillment in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a horrible, despotic, evil oppressor of God's people, and then we take it to the nth degree. Somebody like him is going to come. And so, for instance, we read of this person in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Jesus Christ pointedly addressed this text. He says in Matthew 24, 15 of Daniel, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And he goes on to say, For then... There will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. But if anyone says to you, look here, is the Christ. There he is. Do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. That's what Jesus says. He is warning us in advance. Does anybody really know what time it is? You do, because Jesus told you about the appointed time. You benefit by being prepared. You know that there is a great challenge ahead for God's people and to be prepared. Now, while that's true, every day we face greater or lesser challenges. And it's not just this ultimate trouble that tempts us to doubt whether God is in control and whether God is for us. It may cause us to take the advice of Job's wife. You know what Job said to Job when he was in the midst of his trials? Curse God and die. And Job said, my Redeemer lives. And you know that your Redeemer lives, that he loves you, that he's for you, that he is with you even in the worst situation. Psalm 31 says this, the psalmist going through deep difficulty In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Be strong and let, you, let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. And we know even more than the psalmist knew that he who did not spare his own son for us but gave him up for us, will he not also along with him give us all things? We know that he is for us, that we have been saved and been given the gift of eternal life through the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, if we would but put our faith in that gift. Our times are in his hands. Not just the time of kings and kingdoms. Our times are in his hands. Joe Novenson is a preacher. He tells the story of a man who sailed uh, the seas back in the 1700s. This man made a living by making transatlantic voyages. Uh, He was preparing to leave all this and, and settle in America for good. He was uh, he was to be married. He brought his fiancée on the, on the ship with him. And uh, during their time in the Atlantic, a, a fierce storm arose. Uh, the waves were higher uh, than houses and came crashing down on the boat. And it was in the middle of the night, and the only light was the, the, the lightning that illuminated the sky and thunder, and the wind howled. And his, his fiancée uh, uh, came out of the, the hold of the boat just desperate and and said to her fiancé, weeping, she said, um, uh, we're going to die, essentially. We're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And he said, God will see us through. And she responded, how can you be sure? And the man drew his sword and pointed it at his fiancé and asked her, are you afraid? And she said, no. And he said, why not? He said, because I know the heart behind the hand. And so it is with God. He said, we know the heart behind the hand. Singer-songwriter Mark Hurd put it this way, In this world, thunder throbs in the darkness, but in the eye of the storm, friends of God suffer no permanent harm. We know we'll face difficulty, 
but we'll suffer no permanent harm. Uh, what should no good? We know a lot of good things from this text about God's sovereign control in our lives. Um, I'm thinking uh, my working title for uh, next week's sermon is What You Know Gooder, uh, because in chapter 12, it gets even better. Uh, probably not. I don't know if I can go there or not, but, uh, but you get the idea uh, that as we conclude the book of Daniel, we get even better news that will encourage us and fortify us as we face challenges toward our faith here in this world. Uh, With that, let's continue our worship by singing hymn number 493. If you would please stand and sing together, It Is Well With My Soul. (laughs) 